Good morning, everyone, and if you want to warm my soul, just call me Papa. <laughs> Pretty special. I haven't seen my new granddaughter yet. That's a task for later this afternoon as I drive to London and be introduced to this new arrival into the world. Thank you, Duane and team, for leading us in a very, very special and powerful time of worship. We are told to speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And that's what we have done this morning. And as, as important as opening the Word of God and sharing and teaching the Word of God, it is just as important to participate in, this, in the singing of the hymns and in prayer and scripture reading and all those other things that we have done already this morning. We have worshipped. We have come into the presence of God. I trust that your heart has been warmed, challenged, encouraged, and blessed uh, by, the, uh, by our, our worship time uh, this morning. And now we enter into the worship part of the service. It's called the proclamation of the word, uh, the, the preaching and the teaching of the Holy Scriptures. Let's pray as we begin. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, thank you that we can uh, be here today and we are grateful for your goodness to allow us to sit in this room and to sing praises, to listen to your word, to encourage and bless one another with a kind word and a handshake and a greeting. And Lord, as we have gathered as a community, as we have gathered as a church, Lord, I pray that you empower us. I pray that you would uh, motivate us, drive us send us forth in, in a new and fresh way into a world that desperately needs to know what we know and have what we have found in Jesus of Nazareth. And Lord, I pray that as we uh, are the people of God in the world, in our workplaces, in our homes, our schools, our communities, that there would be something different and unique about us that would announce the blessedness of the kingdom of God that has come through Christ. Lord, I pray that you would help us now as we look at a text of scripture familiar to many of us, but perhaps something here that can speak to us in a new and fresh way. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. In Dan Brown's famous or infamous Da Vinci Code, there is a character by the name of Silas. And uh, he, uh, he was an albino, but more importantly... Uh, in the story, he is an Opus Dei monk. And the uh, Opus Dei monks uh, is an order of monks that were committed to the orthodoxy and protection of the Roman Catholic Church, and that was kind of the role that he played in that story and in that movie. And Opus Dei monks are, are famous for their passionate and sacrificial commitment to God and would suffer for his sake. In this story, Silas wrote, uh, wore what was called a salice. And it was a bracelet. Any of you read the book or saw the movie, it was a bracelet around the top of his leg. And it was a bracelet that would cut and chafed until the skin was raw and bleeding. And he wore this as a continuous form of suffering for God. In his church. Now, Silas in the Da Vinci Code is a fictional character in a fictional novel. But he does reflect 
the kind of actions and practices of Opus Dei monks. On a, on a more historical note, one of the most famous desert monks of the 4th century was a man by the name of Simon Stylites. And at age 30, he took up residence on a square platform about two meters square on top of a, a pole. And at first, the platform was only a few meters off the ground, but eventually he increased the height until it was 20 meters above the ground. And for 39 years, he never came down from that platform, praying, reading scripture, and meditating on God. Martin Luther, as a young monk, would fast for days and went well beyond the required prayers and vigils of the monastic order. He refused blankets and would regularly whip himself. And he wrote, I was a good monk, and I kept the rule of my order so strictly that if ever a monk got to heaven by his monkery, it was I. Now, I don't know about you, but I am impressed. Whether real or fiction, these stories tell a a story of dedication, of commitment, of sacrifice to God and to the mission of God in the world. And they catch my attention. But it leaves me with the question, why? What drove these people? What motivated them to do these kinds of very extreme things? Was it fear? Fear of God? Was it guilt? Was it pride? Was it love? A passionate love for God? Was it some kind of supreme sense of calling, commitment to piety and holiness? Well, the answer is that, ultimately, we don't know. And perhaps it really doesn't matter for them. But it points us to another question. And that question is this. What motivates us? What motivates us to live for God to live for his kingdom, to live for his mission in the world, to live for the cause of the church. What motivates you and me as 21st century followers of Christ and members of his church? To live for God at work, at home, at school, in the community. To serve God in the church and in the world. To follow Christ as his disciple. To somehow be involved in the mission and the call of being a Christian. What drives us? What pushes us? To be and to do what we're supposed to be and do as citizens of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Is it fear? Is it fear of God's wrath? God's judgment. I grew up in a verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11 that went like this. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, 
we persuade men. Knowing the terror of the Lord. And it wasn't until quite a bit later, as I was looking at Scripture and studying Scripture a little more carefully, this verse that had haunted me throughout my youth and childhood and youth, I found out that that phrase, terror of the Lord, is rooted in an Old Testament concept called the fear of the Lord. And it had a whole lot more to do with worship and the worship of God than it had to do with being afraid of God. But for some, the terror of the Lord motivates to action and service. Is it guilt? Our hands dripping with the blood of others. We're afraid of that moment when perhaps the question will be asked, how come you didn't tell this person or that person? And their, their blood is dripping from our hands. I remember a poster years ago. And there was someone in the front of the poster, at the front edge of the poster, at the, with kind of Coke bottle glasses. And this person was re, had a big Bible and he was reading the Bible. And in the background, there were people falling off a cliff, dropping into the fires of hell. And the message of that poster was, stop reading your Bible and get out there and tell people about Jesus because their blood is on your hands. And that was obviously intending to motivate us to action through guilt. And it was rooted in Paul's statement in Acts chapter 20, I am free from the blood of all men. And that freedom came from telling everyone he could about Jesus and the gospel. But then I went back to that passage and read it again. And I found out that the reason why Paul said he was free from the blood of all men was was because he did not fail to declare the whole counsel of God. In other words, that guy reading scripture through the Coke bottle glasses was closer to the truth and closer to being right than what that poster was intended to motivate us to do. He was free from the blood of all people because he did not fail to declare the entire truth that is found in the Holy Scripture. Perhaps we're motivated by the expectations of others whom we respect. Perhaps we're motivated to action and to service for God because of the expectations of a pastor or a youth leader or a parent or a mentor, a spouse or even a child. We don't want to disappoint significant people in our lives. Perhaps our motivation is pride. Kind of interesting to think about that in the Christian church. But I'm suspicious that that motivation is not absent. A motivation for and a desire for notoriety. Visibility. Name being known. To become a household name because of perhaps radio or television or books or music. Or magazine features. 
I'm sure that at times that inkling comes into each one of our lives at one time or another. Or perhaps, and this is usually the big one that we talk about, and it's a good one, and it's an important one, but we often talk about, and we're motivated for mission out of the phrase, and we used to sing the song in our missions conferences, people need the Lord. And it is true. People need the Lord. And we see the pictures of masses of people in the faces of children who do not know Christ. We live in communities here in Oshawa and my community of Kitchener-Waterloo and filled with people who do not know what we know and do not have what we have in Jesus Christ. And the need is real and we need to respond. Perhaps that need is what motivates us. And it's an honorable and a noble motivation. And so whatever our motives might be, they are forever mixed. And they sometimes reflect good, and I would think that for most of us, most often they do. Perhaps at times, not so good. But... And here's the crux of the matter that we're thinking about this morning. The very foundation of all that we are and do as followers of Jesus Christ, as people engaged in the mission of the kingdom of God, at the very foundation must be The motivation that drove one of the most articulate and passionate and committed prophets of the Old Testament and of all of the Bible. This man was the head of the school of the prophets in Jerusalem. He had royal connections. He was a superior theologian who was driven by the prophetic mission that was painful and difficult. We're going to see that in a minute. He was a heavy hitter in the world of prophets and spiritual leaders... And in a critical text, he recounts an encounter with the living God that set the foundational motivation of all that he was and all that he did as a prophet and a follower of God. And it set the foundation to say in response to the famous question that we all know, who will I send Who will go for us to say in response to that question, here am I, send me. Dwayne has already introduced us to the text and to the man. I invite you to take your Bibles with me and turn to the book of Isaiah. The man's name is Isaiah and the text that we want to look at this morning is Isaiah 6. Isaiah 6, and I deeply appreciate the way Duane has taken us there already and helped us already orient our thoughts around this glorious text. Isaiah chapter 6. Please follow as I read it to you. Verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted. And the train of his robe filled the temple. 
And above him were the seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Kodesh, Kodesh, Kodesh. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. Mine eyes have seen the king, the king, Yahweh Tzavaoth, the Lord Almighty. And one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hands, which he had taken from the tongs of the altar, from the altar. And with it, he touched my mouth, and he said, See, this is touch your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. And then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And that classic response that we all know. Here am I. Send me. Now we need to understand that this text is all about Isaiah. And his call to mission and ministry. It's his personal call. It's his his personal experience. But I am convinced that he has recorded this text in his book for us, for, for his people in his day, in the 8th century B.C., and in our day today, to read and learn and to see as a paradigm, as it were, as a model on what it is to be motivated for mission and followership of Christ. I also believe that the Holy Spirit has breathed this text into Scripture for all God's people to see and understand. And so the question is, what motivated an 8th century B.C. prophet by the name of Isaiah to answer the question of mission and followership of God and his kingdom the way that he did, and what do we learn and see today as our motivation to love and serve Christ as his church in the 21st century A.D.? There's three parts of the story that help us get to the response. And the first thing that we see is what we might call the the visio dei. The vision of God. You see, the story opens with the death of Uzziah. Uzziah was a good king. He had a tough time at the end of his life. He had did something inappropriate. He was struck with leprosy. And he was not allowed to be buried in the places where kings were buried because he had leprosy. Because he invaded the temple and, and, and behaved inappropriately. But he was a good king. He had a heart after God. And tragedy looms because coming down the line, Isaiah could see two sons, Jotham and Ahaz, and they were not good men. And so Isaiah sees that that his people are in trouble, that Jerusalem is in trouble. And so so God grants him a vision. And he grants him a vision of of a heavenly temple, of a heavenly palace, of, of the priest king in all his glory in order to say to Isaiah, listen, I am king, I am in control, I am God. You can rest in my care and love. 
And so to encourage Isaiah, God grants him this, this vision of his glory. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw Adonai, a term that means master or lord or king, exalted one. I like to think about uh, the two terms that describe God that begin with A. You've got Adonai on one side and Abba on the other. They're opposites. Exaltation and transcendence and closeness and nearness. Here we have Adonai. I saw Adonai seated upon a throne, high and exalted. The royal robe is filling his temple and he's a priest king that is indescribable and is indescribable in, in glory and beauty. And above him were the seraphs, each with six, six wings and with two they were covering their feet and with two they were flying and two they're covering their faces and they were calling to one another and holy, holy, holy. And they were speaking to each other in, in such a way that in the Hebrew language expresses the, the ultimate. They don't have a way to say the best or the most. The way they do it is they do it by repeating it three times. Holy, holy, holy. Kodesh, Kodesh, Kodesh. The holiest of all. Is Yahweh Sevaoth, a term that talks about his might and his power, Lord of armies. The whole earth is full of his glory. Isaiah's God and ours is truly the glorious sovereign and king over all creation. He is glorious in his holiness. Throughout the book of Isaiah, he is called the Holy One of Israel. And I find it fascinating as I, as I read this text over and over again. And at first I thought this observation was a little bizarre. But as I thought about it over the years, I think the observation is valid. Isn't it fascinating that these creatures called seraphim, the word seraph in Hebrew means to, to burn or to glow, these burning ones, these burning and glowing creatures, Closest to the throne of God. Crying one word, holy. And it's fascinating with their six wings. Two of them are covering their faces. Two of them are covering their feet. And with two they're flying. Do you sense a proportionality here? Four out of the six wings are used in abject worship. Only two are used for service and ministry. And the creatures closest to the throne of God know what it is to spend their days, their hours, their time, their voices in the praise and adoration and worship of God. And sometimes I wonder if we haven't got things turned around. We haven't got things a little bit upside down, inside out. When we think that spirituality is all about busyness and action and activity and mobility. When in fact, God wants us to slow down and stop 
reflect, be still, and know that he is God. And I find it fascinating, as they sang in worship, even inanimate objects moved. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the, and the temple was filled with smoke. The Shekinah glory filled that temple. It was another Mount Sinai. God has come crashing into Isaiah's life, as he did with Moses, and he records it for all God's people to see and hear. And so we are confronted by Isaiah with what is often called, this, this theologian call it the, the theophanic vision. There's a big one for you. The theophanic vision. We are bathed in the wonder and the glory of God. And our mission in the world is to tell the story of that glory. And we are all about raising up a choir from every tongue, tribe, and nation to sing the praises of God and the Redeemer of the universe. And so as we come to the question, who will I send and who will go for us? And we come to the answer, here am I, send me. We need to know that this kind of vision of God must stand at the foundation of all motivation of anything that we do for God in his mission and for his kingdom. Otherwise, we need to know that the heat and the hatred of a world and people arrayed against God and his people, which it is, will drive us home, cowering and simpering in despair. While other motivating factors may play a part, those things that I talked to you about earlier have a place, perhaps. Some of them don't. No other foundational motivating factor can replace this one. The visio day, the vision of, a, of the glory of a thrice holy God must remain forever entrenched on our minds and hearts, and it must be renewed day after day, time after time, throughout our pilgrimage of faith here on this planet. And by the way, who did Isaiah see? What person of the Trinity was revealed to Isaiah in this glorious vision? Come with me to John chapter 12. I find it absolutely fascinating. I was blown away when I came across this for the first time. John chapter 12. I'm down to verse 39. John is writing... But what's going on with Jesus and his ministry? And he writes this. For this reason they could not believe. Because as Isaiah says elsewhere. And this, these next, that next verse. Verse 40. Is a quote out of the rest of Isaiah 6. Okay, you, you need to understand that. So verse 40 is right out of Isaiah 6. It's right after the verses that we, we just read earlier. He has blinded their eyes. He has deadened their hearts. So they can neither see with their eyes. Nor understand with their hearts. Or turn and I would heal them. That's, that's Isaiah chapter 6 verse 10. Look at verse 41. Isaiah said this because he saw whose glory? Jesus' glory. And spoke about him. Tell me something. Who did Isaiah see? 
He saw none other than the person, than the second person of the Trinity, the one we know as Jesus of Nazareth. And the one around whom the seraphims fly and worship and sing, holy, 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 is none other than the one seated on the throne, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ himself. And I don't know about you, but this just creates a whole new idea. It shapes my mind, it challenges my heart in understanding who our Savior, Jesus of Nazareth, really is and the kind of worship that he expects from his people. Puts a little different light on the carpenter of Galilee and the one that we sing and speak about Sunday after Sunday. But the story doesn't stop here. And there's a second part to this. There's a response. We've seen the visio day, and now we can come to what we might call the confessio day, the confession before God. The realization of Isaiah's own sinfulness and confession before God because of the blazing glory of, of Christ's holiness. And it's fascinating. He says in verse 7, Woe is me, I cried. I I am ruined, for for I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. Mine eyes have seen the king. See, there you go. He was worried about Uzziah's death. Now he says, oh, I got nothing to worry about. I've seen the king, the Lord Almighty. But you know what's interesting? He starts off with his confession by this word, woe. Again, it's a Hebrew word, hoi. Hoi is me. But if you go back to chapter 5, there's already been six hoys pronounced against God's people. Come with me back to chapter 5 and look look at verse 8. Woe to you who add house to house and join field to field, and they occupy land that's not theirs. Verse 11. Woe to those who rise early in the morning and to run after their drinks and stay up late at night until they are inflamed with wine. Now come to verse 18. Woe to those who draw sin along with cords of deceit. Verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good. Verse 21. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes. Verse 22. Woe to those who are heroes of drinking wine. Six times. Woe, 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 woe against, against God's people and their inappropriate behavior. And as a prophet, he spoke with passion and vigor. But for whom does he save the seventh? Six times, woe. The seventh, the last, the pinnacle. Woe is me. While we are called to speak with passion, conviction to the church and to the world when it's all said and done the last and climactic woe must always be against ourselves as seen in the light of a thrice holy God how we constantly how we need to be constantly reminded of our own need for cleansing and renewal how we need to be constantly be people of repentance This is not a popular concept in our pop Christian thinking in comfortable churches. Robert Schuller, the famous famous Crystal Cathedral, one of the gurus of the health and wealth gospel, said this. 
I don't think anything has been done in the name of Jesus Christ and under the banner of Christianity that's proven more destructive to human personality and hence counterproductive to the evangelism enterprise than the often crude, uncouth, and unchristian strategy of attempting to make people aware of their lost and sinful condition. This kind of thinking loses two critical perspectives. One, the perspective of a thrice holy God. Two, the perspective of our desperate and needy condition before that God. The confessio Dei led, I'm sorry, the visio Dei led to the confessio Dei. In Bono's words, vision over visibility. God's vision over our visibility. The vision of God that leads to repentance and humility and contrition and confession. Sir Stafford Cripps was the president of the Board of Trade and later, later he was the Chancellor of the Exchequer during the administration of Winston Churchill. He was a legalistic and self-righteous Calvinistic Christian. <laughs> I read that somewhere. You Calvinists, take it easy on me. He had a fine sense of his importance and piety, and he made sure everybody knew about it ad nauseum. In fact, he gave up cigars for the war effort, something that Churchill didn't do. One day, when Cripps left the cabinet room, Churchill turned to the others and said, There but for the grace of God goes God. He did not get it. Before Isaiah could be commissioned for a prophetic ministry to make a difference for the kingdom of God, he was brought to his knees in confession, a confession of his sinfulness, a confession of his woefulness, inadequacy, and desperate need for forgiveness and redemption, set in the blinding light of God's glory and holiness. And we, too, must stagger before his glory and fall to our knees and say, I am a sinful man. I am a sinful woman. Someone said, Without a good look at God, there is insufficient light to view ourselves. And so we cry. We need an invasion of your grace. We need your intervention of cleansing and forgiveness. And that is exactly what happens next in the story. And so the third factor in motivating the prophet to answer that question, who will I send, who will go for us, here am I, send me. The third factor is what we might call the gracio day. The grace of God. The grace of God that invades and cleanses the prophet. Look what happens. Then one of the seraphs, one of these burning creatures, flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. And with it he touched my mouth and said, This has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. And notice, there is no effort on his own. There was nothing to do but to receive. His lips, the vehicle of his mission as a prophet, as a spokesman for God, were purified. And a life and a ministry were launched totally by the grace and graciousness of a holy God. And friends, we're all here. Every one of us. Every one of us is in desperate need of the touch of his grace. If we are not, we are nowhere with God and his mission in the world. The ground at the foot of the cross is level. Everybody hear that? The ground at the foot of the cross is level. We all got in by the same amount of grace. It's called infinite grace. And whether you've been a saint for a bazillion years... 
or someone who's just come to faith and you've come from a dark, horrible background. The grace that invaded your life to allow you to become his child was infinite grace because of the infinite love that God has for his creation. Further, we are all empowered for life and service in his kingdom because of the same amount of grace. It's called infinite grace. G.K. Chesterton said, nothing taken for granted, everything we receive with gratitude, everything passed on with grace. Oswald Chambers wrote, I have never met a man I could despair of after discerning what lies in me apart from the grace of God. No matter who we are, where we have come from, whatever our backgrounds are and histories are, the coal of God's redeeming grace must touch our lips and lives. And when that happens, we then are ready for the question. We are ready to hear God's call and question of mission and ministry. And so that brings us to the climax of this whole scene. And we could call it the Missio Day. The question of the mission of God. And the the critical question comes. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? The critical question comes from this thrice holy king. Who will I send? Who will go? Who will be part of the proclamation of my kingdom? Who will engage my mission to my people and to the world? And purely, hear me folks, purely out of the vision of God, out of the grace of God, out of the confession of his own sinfulness, Nothing else around him except God and his glory. He says to God in response, here I am, send me. And I find it fascinating. The mission is accepted before the marching orders are given. (laughs) Verse 9, God said, go tell this people. I love this. Go tell those people, be ever hearing but never understanding, be ever seeing but never perceiving. Make the heart of those people callous, make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes or hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn to be healed. And Isaiah asked a logical question. How long do I got to do this for, God? And he said, until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields are ruined and vanished and and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken, there's only 10% left. Wow. How would you like to get that as your commission? Go empty the churches. Go be a total failure by the way we measure success in our day and time. Numbers and money. And be a total success for me as my prophet. Out of the vision of myself. Out of the confession of your own sinfulness. Out of the grace that has invaded your lives. Now go and do what I want you to do and be what I want you to be for my kingdom and my glory, God says. Popularity, book sales, CD sales, growing churches were not the promise or even the hope. Happiness, contentment, ease and comfort were not the context for the mission. And it is clear, we come to acceptance of mission, the mission of the kingdom of God, rooted in the vision of God and his grace, and then we find out when and where we are to serve and how to serve him in his kingdom. And I'm not sure that we as his church today are used to thinking in these kinds of terms. 
I don't know what drove a Simon Stylites or a Martin Luther or a Mother Teresa or a John Huss or Opus Dei monks. I don't know what drove a William, William Carey. I don't know what drives hundreds of thousands and millions of dedicated followers of Christ around the world today. By the way, some of whom have suffered terribly already today. Some of those followers of Christ have died today. I don't know what drives or motivates them. But I do know what drove Isaiah. It's called a vision of God. Holy and glorious as a priest king. And that led to a confession before God. Woe is me, I am a sinful man. Which then led to the grace of God, a coal from the altar, purifying and anointing his lips for mission and service. All of which then served as a motivating foundational factor for being part of the mission of God among his people and in the world. Arthur Burns served in several prominent posts during the presidencies of Eisenhower through to Reagan. Arthur Burns was a Jew. And so when he started attending a Christian Bible study in a prayer group, it caused a bit of a stir. But in deference to his Jewishness, he was never asked to pray to close the Bible study. One day, however, there was a newcomer who was leading the study who did not know the background of Arthur Burns. And so at the end of the Bible study, he turned to Mr. Burns and said, would you close in prayer? The longtime residents of the study shifted uncomfortably in their seats. But without missing a beat, he extended his hands and he prayed this prayer that has become famous in Washington. He prayed, Dear God, I pray that Jews would come to know Jesus Christ. Dear God, I pray that Christians, that, no, I just blew it. I pray that Muslims would come to know Jesus Christ. Dear God, I pray that Christians would come to know Jesus Christ. We have seen a vision of Jesus Christ. And may that vision shape our minds challenge our hearts and drive our sense of mission, ministry, and life for God's church and the gospel of his kingdom. Dear God, I pray that we would see your son in a new and fresh way and through that vision challenge and motivate for the mission of your kingdom like we have never had that done before. In Christ's name we pray.